when Abraham Lincoln was a kid, there were no helicopter parents. In fact, just a few generations ago, childhood was tough, and roles and expectations were far different than today. Of course, we usually think that our views on children have evolved, and that we're making progress. But if you step back and look, there are plenty of downsides to all the guarding, protecting, and scheduling kids get today. And those have an impact on the role schools and colleges play as well. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here. I recently sat down with a professor who studies the history of childhood in America, Stephen Mintz. He's a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. And he keeps that perspective in mind as he wears his other hat as director of the University of Texas System's Institute for Transformational Learning. We talked about how Abraham Lincoln's life differed from kids today, and about why he thinks higher education is going through a once-in-a-generational transformation. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm talking today with Stephen Mintz, who is the director of the University of Texas at Austin's Institute for Transformational Learning. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah, I wanted to... um, I wanted to say, you know, you mentioned you're a historian and still a history professor in addition to your other duties, and you've written some acclaimed books about the way attitudes about childhood and adulthood, but the transition from childhood to adulthood has changed over the years. What do you think that changing view of adolescence, how has that affected the student experience at college? We often think of the history of childhood as the history of its liberation. That is, the kids in the past were servants or they were apprentices and that their lives were really regimented. They spent, if you were a female, you spent your childhood spinning thread or doing menial chores. And if you were a boy, you worked in a factory or you worked in a shop. Right, the child labor experience. Yeah. And, and we think how much better off kids are today. Abraham Lincoln said when he was a young man, that when he was a boy, he was a slave. He was a slave to his father. And that it's not surprising that when his father was dying, Abraham Lincoln made no effort to reach out to him. Hmm. But I would at least suggest to you that the story is more ambiguous than a story of liberation. Children and young uh, and adolescents have much less free, unstructured, unsupervised time than their predecessors did. Parents are putting their kids, much more than in the past, into adult-structured, adult-supervised activities. The geographical range of childhood and youth has contracted over time. Geographical, meaning the, the, the landscape they get to play on? Right, and to ride their bicycle on. Uh, a great irony is when we required bicycle helmets, fewer kids were willing to bicycle because they didn't want to look like jerks. Wow. And kids spend more time on a screen or more time shopping than they do in what we used to call childhood, which was free, unstructured outdoor play. 
And that's a loss. And it's made it harder for kids to cut the umbilical cord. It's made it harder to establish an independent identity. It's made it harder for kids to chart an independent path in life. Sure, it is way better to have a close, intimate relationship with a parent, though I suspect it's better for the parents than it is for the kids. But it has a cost. And one of the values of history is to reject crude, linear notions of progress and to see life really as it is, as a much more complicated, ambivalent story. Hmm. That's, that's a, I think that's a challenge to parents of young kids like myself. Um, but it's hard, right? Because the, the, um, there aren't, I don't know, I guess, I, how do you fix that? Or what is, the, what is to be done? Because it's, some of it is changes in density of populations or um, people's perceptions of safety. I don't know. You're absolutely right. There are structural reasons for why parenting has changed. The decline in birth rates, the growing fear of crime and sexual abuse, what I call the discovery of risk. Hmm. Uh, That is the worry on the part of parents that almost anything can cause some irreparable accident. The fact that parents have fewer children and that they're older and better educated makes them much more sensitive than in the past to the risks and challenges that young people face. We live in a more psychologized society. We're way more sensitive to children's inner states. And in many ways, that's a good thing, but it's not an unvarnished good. And so it is not easy to be a parent today. It's extremely stressful all complicated by the fact that we have many more single parents and many more dual worker families, so that there are time stresses that didn't exist in quite the same way as in the past. And so the great challenge, I think, for parents is to do the hardest thing of all, and that is to grant your child the freedom to be a child. We have largely rejected the notion of age-appropriate learning that one day you don't know how to multiply and then suddenly you do. And it's not because the teacher got better and Hmm. it's not because you made them read a book or listen to a tape recording. It's because they grew (laughs) and their brain capacity developed. I see. They're ready for it then. Exactly. And... And this challenge to let your child take risks and grow and achieve freedom and confidence on their own, that is the hardest thing for parents who are part of a culture of control. That is the hardest thing to do. Uh, Well, and it probably affects the professor role too, right? By the time they get up to a college level? For many professors, and I would include myself in this, you know, for 20 odd years, you sat and you listened to lectures, and now it was your turn to lecture. 
And the most important thing that teachers can do, I am convinced, is to treat their students as partners and as creators of knowledge. In other words, to relinquish a little bit of the control of the classroom, to think of yourself as a learning architect, but not to think of yourself as a sage on the stage, (laughs) and to let your students construct knowledge to let them discover insights on their own. It is not easy to do, but that's how people learn. Okay, you've been working on a project uh, at UT Austin called the Text Platform, which is the total educational experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Text is several things at once. First of all, it's a digital learning environment that is much more commercial grade much more immersive, much more interactive than today's existing learning management systems. Secondly, it is a system for collecting fine-grained learning data about student performance, that is, pace, performance, engagement, persistence, and the like. And it also has the capability of incorporating information from the student information system so it can tie student performance data to student profile data and therefore allow us to make recommendations, to personalize learning trajectories, and to generally improve the educational experience. And third, text is part of a larger educational marketplace that is We're trying to create a platform where multiple institutions can offer courses and we can provide recommendations so students can develop credentials over time that will help them in the job market. So these are credentials, not the BA, meaning smaller pieces that they can collect even if they're at different institutions. Correct. Now, some of these will be degrees, but many of them will be the alternate certifications that we're talking about in recent days, like micro-credentials or badges and the like. And some will be competencies. Mm -hmm. That is, we're extremely interested in the specific knowledge, skills, abilities, and capabilities that students acquire through various learning experiences, whether they're training experiences, like in the military or corporate training, or whether they're academic experiences that take place in a classroom or online. So what, give me an example maybe of one or two of those credentials that I might find in your marketplace. Well, for example, we're, ver- we're working right now with Army University, as a number of leading systems and other institutions are, to try to create what we call knowledge graphs, That is, what are the specific skills and knowledge that people acquire in military training programs? Knowledge graph. Knowledge graphs. Mm -hmm. And uh, this will allow our campuses to do, quote-unquote, prior learning assessment so we can award college credit for the skills, competencies that people acquire in the military. Right now, you could be... uh, working in nuclear physics in the military, learning a great deal, and find it extremely difficult to transfer that for credit hours. We need to make that simpler. 
We need to make that more seamless. We may need to make that smoother if we're going to get veterans to go. Well, the other thing I, I heard, um, I was talking to, to someone else um, the other day who knew of a student who took a class in something they already had an AP certification for. I think it was like a general science class. And the other student was like, why are you in this class? You already know all this stuff. And they're like, well, I wanted to get a good grade. So is it also to avoid these kind of duplicative um, study for people if they can be just kind of actually getting the credit they need instead of just um, having to convert to a grade in a class? I suspect most parents and certainly most legislators believe it takes too long for many students to get a degree. And too many students don't get to go And we need to figure out how to expedite this process without in any way compromising quality. And if a student acquired the knowledge that we expect in high school, either in an AP course, an international baccalaureate program, or an early college program, then why not give them credit? There's other classes for them to take. And, and it's also a very big expense to take classes, all this stuff. All this. Exactly. And why, I guess, how will you, you in your credentials marketplace, how, do, how does someone prove competency? Isn't that the big problem or the challenge for a program like this, is to get something that everyone agrees that, okay, they do know it? In our prototype programs, we're working with standard-setting organizations, with industry, and with assessment specialists, like the Council on Aid for Education, to develop really sophisticated project-based assessments that really demonstrate what a student can do with their knowledge. This is not a multiple-choice test. Correct. Now, most of the areas that we're working in right now have accrediting exams or licensing exams, like nursing or the MCATs. And so we need to know that students are acquiring the skills that will allow them to succeed in those domains on those kinds of outcomes-oriented tests. Would it be harder in art history or my own discipline of history? Of course it would be more difficult. But large numbers of students are trying to earn job-related credentials, and we need to help them do that. If you ask students what is the most valuable part of their college experience, they're generally going to talk about their co-curricular or extracurricular activities. That's a fancy way of saying clubs or parties or frats or whatever it is, right? Or, or internships or, or study yeah. abroad uh, or service learning activities or independent research. which is not well integrated into the college experience. In other words, it's the active learning experiences that mean most to students, not the lectures that they sat for through, or even the seminars that they sat through, or even the books that they read independently. Does your platform capture, then, some of these extracurriculars? Well, my view is that Too often, even today, after all the talk about the learning sciences, many of our classes consist largely of midterms and a final and maybe a paper. And that means that a student will respond rationally. They're going to cram. In other words, they're going to devote a lot of energy in a very short time, meaning that they have a lot of free time the rest of the semester. 
time that they can devote to work or time they can devote to partying or just socializing. And we need to rethink that academic experience, it seems to me. We want to integrate the co-curricular with the curricular. We want to have the educational experience more immersive, more engaging than it currently is, more all around the student. And that way, I think learning will be more intense, learning will be deeper, learning will be richer, and it will benefit in a whole variety of ways, including, I think, counteracting some of the negative social aspects of the current college experience. That's interesting. So some of the binge drinking is actually about not enough academic demands that that are keeping them from that. And it's not just a question of demands or rigor, but it's that if you don't feel immersed in your studies, if you don't find them fulfilling and meaningful and engaging, then you're going to find fulfillment and meaning and engagement elsewhere and sometimes not in the areas we'd most appreciate. Hmm. And so some of these... um it's always interesting to me that, you know, it's some of this, there's a technology aspect to what you're doing, but the real, these are, it seems like that's just a measurement tool for something else. Like the, 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 the real issues here sort of are bigger than or different than just a digital thing um, or, a, or an app. Well, I uh, am a technophile. And I do believe that technology can serve some really valuable roles in a student's education. I am a great advocate of simulations. For one of my history classes, we created a simulation where you have to sail from Spain to the New World and back using current wind and ocean current information. Hmm. In other words, be Columbus for a moment and try to sail across the Atlantic and see how hard it is to do. And we're creating virtual laboratories. We're trying to create powerful social experiences online. You and I have powerful social experiences all the time, uh, often mediated through technology, and we don't see it a problem. I'm not calling for a totally technologized educational experience, but let's take advantage of some of the, of the strengths of technology. For example, one of my colleagues at Columbia University had students create websites on every neighborhood in New York City, collecting oral histories and images and other Uh, aspects of material culture. What a great resource and what a way to engage students. You know, we're at, right now we're sitting at the University of Michigan um, campus and uh, you're you're here, um, we're here as part of this conference of people from around the country looking at academic innovation centers and trying to figure out how to spread that kind of practice at universities. Um, So, I guess one of the things that I've picked up on or in talking to a couple of people is a little bit, you know, we, there was a joke that a lot of the people with academic innovation in their titles, like yourself really, um, have been in the job for a couple years and these are kind of the first time they've ever, you know, these jobs have been there. So it's a new 
um, to be kind of this carved out at a college is still relatively new. But um, a little bit of I'm sensing a little bit of anxiety about whether these jobs will will stick around for the long haul. In that, um, there's always this danger that it could be a fad. This kind of high level energy at colleges to invest in these kinds of because really part of the part of the thing is you're you're sort of saying that our our teaching needs to be better. Um, do you do you have that concern or what what do you how, do you worry that this could be some sort of um, the thing that might not be as invested in in the long term at, at colleges? In roughly 50-year cycles, since the 1850s, American higher education has gone through some fundamental transformations. Things like grades or credit hours or departments or 15-week terms are not timeless. They're not written in stone. They were inventions. We're in one of those once-in-a-generational moments when higher education is in ferment, and it is our job during this period of flexibility to help create new models. Uh, The president may say that history bends through justice, but history is not an entity. History is what you and I and others make it. And many of us are in the enviable position of helping to shape the future of public and private higher education. It's a great opportunity and it's a great burden at the same time. And it's not forever. We all know that. And so we have to make the most of this once-in-a-lifetime chance while we've got the chance. Hmm. So, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) But I think when we're done, you're going to see some really fundamental changes that are really for the best for our learners. There's much greater emphasis right now on learning outcomes, and that's a good thing. There's much greater emphasis on active, engaged learning than in the past. There's growing efforts to try to use technology to really increase access, not only access in terms of student exposure to resources, but to to create new kinds of learning tools that were unimaginable in the past. Just wait to see when we have 3D reconstructions of historical sites that you can walk through using your virtual reality goggles you will have a level of immersion that wasn't possible in the past. And if that can't bring academics to life, I don't know what can. So uh, as a historian, I know that all opportunities for change are fleeting, but let's seize the moment and let's make exciting things occur. Well, I think it's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's really my pleasure. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send suggestions to feedback at edsurge.com. And keep up with every episode by subscribing on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice. And please take a minute to give us a rating. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.